Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we address the toppling of statues around the world amid the Black Lives Matter protests. Is this an airbrushing of history, as some claim, or a long overdue corrective to historic prejudices? In recent weeks, there have been dramatic scenes across the globe of statues of slavers, colonialists and confederates being pulled down by protesters, daubed in paint or graffitied, and sometimes removed through official means. This week, Oxford University's Oriel College voted to remove its statue of the Victorian imperialist Cecil Rhodes and will set up an independent inquiry into the issues around the statue, following a four-year-long student campaign, Rhodes Must Fall. This development's emblematic of how an issue that's rumbled on for years is prompting historic scenes and potentially momentous change in the way nations address their history. This week, we explore what happens next. We talk to Richard Benjamin, the director of the International Slavery Museum, about the events which saw the pulling down of the statue of the slaver Edward Colston in Bristol, and how museums like the Slavery Museum can respond to the increased focus on histories of the transatlantic slave trade. We speak to Astrid de Broeker, the alderman for equal opportunities in Ghent, Belgium, where protests have centred on Leopold II, the king responsible for one of the most brutal of all colonial regimes in what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I speak to Hugh Locke, the artist who's made works about problematic statuary in various parts of the globe for many years. Hugh also chooses the latest in our series Lonely Works, looking at art behind the doors of museums that are closed because of the coronavirus pandemic. He's chosen a painting in the Tate Collection by Agostino Brunius, depicting slaves in the Caribbean. Before that, some details of a new initiative from the art newspaper. How can museums recover from COVID-19? What decisions can they make now to ensure a sustainable future? These are just two of the questions for discussion in Funding Matters, a live online event being held by the art newspaper on the 25th of June. For more details of the event, including the speakers and how you can join, please visit theartnewspaper.com slash live. Now, one of the most common refrains of the debate around contentious statues is that if the statues are removed, they should be put in museums. But what kind of museums? Well, one such institution is the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, UK. And I spoke this week to Richard Benjamin, the director of the museum, about recent events and how museums might be able to grasp the momentum of the Black Lives Matter protests in the long term. Richard, I'd like to begin by asking you what you were feeling as you were seeing events transpire in Bristol just over a week ago. There was a lot of passion there, wasn't there? A lot of anger. Uh, and obviously some people had, had wanted to uh, not wait anymore for discussion and dialogue, but to take action. Uh, now, obviously, you know, I'm not condemning anything like that, but I can understand there was frustration uh, and that obviously boiled over in Bristol. It did. And let's set the context, because one of the things that listeners may not know is that there had been a an attempted process of discussion in which, for instance, there was the idea of removing the statue was mooted. And then when it was clear that cert there was a certain level of resistance to that, they attempted to put a plaque onto the um, statue, which would which recognised Colston's connection to slavery. But but the fact is that even that faltered so so th th this had been boiling over for some time right 
Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think it's worth putting this in a, in a global context. So you, yes, you've got Colston, but he's just one of, of, of many, many uh, very controversial statues of individuals, you know, around the world. I'm sure I don't need to tell your listeners about all the issues in the US uh, and uh, statues that are named after Confederate figures. But, you know, as a museum, we've been in dialogue with, with various kind of community groups and activists around the world. So, for instance, we had a dialogue with people in Hamburg, uh, in Germany uh, recently, and they were obviously looking at street names and statues within their city. Glasgow, you know, we've worked closely with the museums and, and community groups in Glasgow. People often come to us for kind of our opinion. Uh, we've been here for, for many years, not that we necessarily are the oracle on all of this, but we have experience of the discussions. You're quite right about the, the Colston discussion previously. As far as I'm aware, there, there was some dialogue, I don't know, maybe a year ago now about the, the sign and the interpretation on that sign. I don't think they came to an agreement if they had have done and the wording would have been kind of acceptable for all parties then maybe you wouldn't have the statue eventually torn down and thrown into the dock. But I think it's what's interesting is and I think this is true of lots of reactions that I've seen is that as well as the sort of um, the kind of level of shock at seeing the statue pulled down there's a level of shock that in the 21st century a murderous, frankly, slaver can have a statue in the centre of one of Britain's biggest cities. That that seems deeply shocking to many people. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I mean, look, one of the this this is this is a big issue, uh, and obviously, I work in a museum. I work for a heritage organisation, uh, and you understand the value and the power of history and how people interpret that. The fact is that there are individuals, particularly those members of the black community uh, around the world and uh, of African descent, whether it be the US, Glasgow or Bristol or in Liverpool with the street names. And frankly, many of those people, and I have to say myself included here, you know, I'm from a diverse background, so I have a personal opinion and uh, people are offended, you know, and personally, and I, I've used this kind of an analogy a few times and, and I'm speaking as a, as a you know on a personal level here but equally obviously I know I work for you know a national museum and uh, I've got young kids I've got two kids and I've lived in Liverpool for 20 odd years and obviously I am aware of many of the street names that are named after people who enslaved uh, people uh, of African uh, descent and uh, you know if my son asks me who a street name is named after. I would like to say to them, it's after someone who has done something progressive and has moved the city forward in some way. And I don't know if you necessarily get that by pointing out people like Colston uh, or other uh, people who've enslaved Africans. That, so that's a personal opinion. Uh, I don't necessarily feel it's that progressive. So I'm not saying throw something in a dock, but there had been enough talk about the removal of that statue. Yeah, exactly. But also, one of the interesting aspects that's emerged from all this is there's the, the people who 
are against the removal of the statue are talking about an airbrushing of history. If you take down history, that, that history will be forgotten, it might be repeated, etc. But actually, the, the very act of putting up this statue was an airbrushing of history because it was put up in the late 19th century and it was an attempt, in a, in a way, to gloss over what Colston had done. So it, it's really not as simple as... Um, history represented in one way being removed it's 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 a very very nuanced history that we're talking about here isn't it and i guess the question to you would be can you as the director of your museum illuminate that history and attempt to explain it to a very broad public well let's put it this way and again you know i uh, i don't speak for every museum director I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm the head of, of a, a museum that its focus is transatlantic slavery and its legacies so that's what me and my team work on you know the 24 uh, 7. I have to say the statue itself became more interesting to me as a museum director once it had been thrown in the dock because I thought then there was a much broader narrative that one could tell so like I said you're not advocating that but as a museum, did the statue itself physically, uh, was it of any interest to us as a museum? No, it was the narrative and discussion around it. So when it was thrown in and then when it's been kind of taken out again and it has paint on it, etc., you could tell a much broader story about that. And so for me, you're not erasing history, you're actually expanding people's understanding of it. You know, for those people who knew nothing about Colston or what he represented, well, you're sitting up and taking notice now, aren't you? And you're realising there's a bit much bigger discussion. So, of course, you don't advocate necessarily that, that type of action. But airbrushing history? No. How many people took that much notice of the statue prior to what's just happened? I don't think as many people as now are, are kind of being very vocal saying you're airbrushing our history. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I think that's right. And one of the things that occurred to me is that there's been a lot of learning going on about the history of slavery over the past couple of weeks, but also it exposed how much there is still to do. If you follow the Twitter feed of David Olusoga, the historian, you'll see that he's experienced and he's illuminating an enormous amount of racism directed at him and also a you know, considerable lack of education about the history of slavery in the UK and beyond. So while there have been encouraging signs over the past couple of weeks, there's also been significant evidence that there is still very much to do in order to educate the wider public. Well, absolutely. And in one sense, you know, it'd be great if, if we were in a world where people like David uh, and other historians of, of African descent and, and people who work with, with my team and members of my team and me personally, it would be great if you didn't always have to do something that was around an issue. And I, I often feel this. It's, I was thinking about it the other day, that all my academic and my professional life has been trying to change things. It's always around issues. And, you know, that can get really tiresome. And I've heard a few people saying they're very weary. They don't want to have this discussion. But things haven't necessarily changed. So is there a moment now? I think there is. But you don't need another report. You don't need more kind of discussions at civic level there needs to be action so get people in a room and say look what are the street names or the statues that cause offense to you why does that happen can we expand the understanding of those uh, monuments 
to make the city a more progressive city. Because at the end of the day, racism and discrimination is alive and kicking. It exists. So for me, uh, I don't want to be spending all my time talking about the continued racism and discrimination in this country. But I do. And I think your listeners and other people who, some of them may be angry that, you know, you have a museum director who's saying, well, you know, a statue's become more interesting now that it's been thrown in the dock. There's a reason I say that, you know. So it's the passive voices that need to kind of stand up. And if you don't know much about it, go and find out why people like David and why people like me and members of the black community are so angry and why they're so tired. This is a really interesting factor when it comes into that you've mentioned that you're a you're a national museum, right? So you're partly funded by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, which is the government's the the, the arts ministry, essentially. Um, how much of a conversation can you have about this very issue with the government? Like, can you get Oliver down round a table? He's the, the arts minister round a table and say to him, OK, we need to talk about this. We need to think systemically about how we as a museum can, can evolve this conversation on, especially given that he is essentially parroting what Boris Johnson has said that, about this issue. Can, can you engage the Department of Culture, Media and Sport in constructive discussion about this issue? Yes. I mean, as you said, we're a national museum. We, we are doing this interview now and I'm sat in the Anthony Walker Education Centre. So I'm sat in an education space named after a young black man who was murdered in a racist event uh, just outside of Liverpool. And I'm a trustee of the Anthony Walker Foundation. I have been for a decade. So that's quite important that I'm sat in a room speaking to you named after someone who's died because of the continued racial violence. We're an anti-racist museum. We always have been since we opened in 2007. Uh, so what I would say is, yes, I understand it's very sensitive, but we as a museum, we're already nationally funded. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to get, you know, 50 million quid to open a brand new museum. And in one sense, there isn't a need to, because we already exist. But what I will say to you, and people who don't know this, you know, we own a building, we, we call the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. building. So it's the building adjacent to where I am now on the Albert Dock. I'm, I'm in the Merseyside Maritime Museum. And for those people that, that have been, or those that haven't, there is an iconic building on the Albert Dock as you enter it. And we renamed it in 2012, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. building. Marvellous building. And it's empty. We have, we have events in there, you know, once a month, something like that, if that. Now, we've been trying to expand and finish our project for a decade. Okay. Now, we are about to embark, i.e. now, on a... Uh, National Heritage Lottery Fund application, and we are speaking to DCMS. And we were doing that before all these events recently happened. So they already know what we bring to the table. That's right. This is another interesting point, which is that lots of people have been crying out for a kind of London museum. What, as you say, there is no there is no need for a London museum when we, you know, you are the International Museum of Slavery. And, and in, in fact, can you just give us a sense of how internationally minded you are. You've already talked about your discussions with um, other countries earlier on in this conversation, but can you expand that a bit and tell us, you know, how internationally outward looking are you? I'll draw you back to the room I'm speaking you from now, because in 2007, in this very space, we signed a memorandum of understanding with the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. 
Okay, so the, we, we have a memorandum of understanding. We are part of an international project with the Smithsonian, with Brown University, with the Truppen Museum, uh, with various museums around the world on developing uh, best practice for curators who work within the field of slavery and to develop an international exhibition. That's ongoing, it's been ongoing for four or five years. So when I saw the article the other day and it had some uh, very well-known people saying, well, look at the Smithsonian and what they've done. Members of that team came to Liverpool and saw this museum before they even had any land. Now they've moved on quicker than we have because they had some big names that supported them. Uh, so they kind of, uh, you know, their journey quick, quickened up and I was kind of plateaued, if I'm being totally honest. Uh, but people need to realise how globally important we are as a museum and that many people, and continue to do, is come to us to kind of follow the journey we've been on. So we've always been incredibly kind of internationally focused. I don't think there necessarily needs to be a national museum in London or Bristol. But just, just to kind of clarify, but I think it would be useful for them in those cities and for the communities in particular, if they felt they had a facility that uh, spoke more specifically about that subject matter. And what I would say is, let's have a national narrative, you know, kind of like a narrative through the spine of this country, you know, London, Bristol, Liverpool, Glasgow. So we all work together, but the National Museum is here. And we work closely with maybe, you know, regional or city-based museums on the subject. That's, what, that's what, how I would say it. And do you feel you can influence the wider discussion about decolonising museums? Because it seems to me that if we're talking about systemic changes, as lots of people have pointed out over the past couple of weeks, this all connects to the legacies of slavery which exist in terms of objects in encyclopaedic museums in Britain and beyond. Do you feel that you can influence that discussion? Can you talk to museum colleagues about decolonisation of the museums and how... Uh, the current events can actually lead to systemic change in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, this is about process. And one thing I say to people about the, the decolonizing discussion, don't think it's a new discussion again. I always harp back to this. You know, we, we're, the discussions we're having now are on the backs of other pioneers in, the, in, in this discussion. And it definitely wasn't people within the museum sector in the UK who've kind of necessarily moved things on. Yeah, it's great that there's discussions and the, and the Museums Association, etc., are all highlighting this. But there is a side of me, slightly cynically kind of thinks, oh, so everyone thinks now we're moving forward as a sector because we're all having these discussions. No, the discussions have been ongoing. It's just they didn't necessarily have a platform. So it's about process. And one of the ways you decolonize museums and collections is you diversify the museum professionals who are able to engage in those discussions. We know, we don't have to talk now, do we, about the dearth of, of BAME members of staff within this sector, okay? We, we don't have to have that discussion. We know it exists. So sadly, even though it's good that there's a discussion ongoing about decolonizing the collections, this issue is longer term because you need more diverse individuals to even study the subject matters that allow you to begin a career, for instance, in, in the curatorial world. I'm an archaeologist by trade, and in the early 90s, there was very few BAME individuals studying the subject of archaeology, and it's still 
the same today. So it's great that there's a discussion, but the sector needs to understand, and you know, the university sector as well, that there needs to be more opportunities for BAME students who are interested within this field to then get an opportunity to even work for a museum to then be part of these kind of dialogues. Because you're not just decolonizing the collection, you're decolonizing the people who work within museums. And I, th I think it speaks to, again, this sense that we, we are at this extraordinary moment, a, a, a very um, upsetting moment because of the events in the States with George Floyd, but also uh, a moment where I feel like there is the possibility for more change in terms of the way that the cultural sector is responding to this issue um, than I think probably at any other point in my lifetime. Do you think that's possible? And what does the museum sector need to do to make sure that this remains a, a, a topic that is continually discussed rather than forgotten in the next news cycle, as it were? Well, within our sector, you think of the amount of people we, we engage with. So it's, a, so it's a great starting point, isn't it, for, for all these national discussions. Uh, and, that, and I think a lot of activists and people involved, for instance, in these debates, they know that museums have a, have a massive part to play. Hence why everyone was saying, you know, get the Colston statue in a museum, because there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people who are going to be engaging with it rather than walking past it in the centre, you know, the centre of, of, uh, of Bristol. Sadly, and I'm being a pragmatist now, funding is a massive part of this, okay? So if, for instance, we as a museum were managed to obtain the many millions of pounds, but you put it in the bigger scheme of things, there's, there's museum projects that are ongoing that, that probably are going to get more of us or are looking to get more than us. But let's just say we get major funding in the next couple of years. We have a building already that we own and exists we have the team we have the experience we're in a city where there's already advanced dialogue with community activists community historians that's why people come to liverpool and ask for our advice so you can go to the culture minister and and we will have the discussion when we go back to them soon and talk to them you're not reinventing the wheel there is a museum that exists but we just need to be able to finish what was started, do you know? So these discussions, yes, they can go off the radar, you know? Let's be honest, especially in this country, all oh, globally in a sense, we had Brexit, it's all we talked about. Sadly, we've had the pandemic, that's what we talk about. Me in particular, I've got two kids at home and we all need to breathe and get back and, and to our normal lives. So I don't need to be told how that's affected. And now there's this that's converged on the media so what what's in the next couple of months and will this fall off again and there's always a chance it will unless it's in your dna to fight this kind of thing so it's it's always what i do it will never go off of kind of you know of my radar because that's what i do in my job but what i will say to you and people who will listen if you genuinely believe museums can make a difference then make sure that your mp your counselor knows that we're we're here and we've got an opportunity to be central to this national dialogue through the lens of a museum and i think that's what people should be getting behind amen to that richard thank you so much for joining us today my pleasure thanks for having us
You can read more about the International Slavery Museum at liverpoolmuseums.co.uk. We'll speak to Astrid de Broeker in a moment, but first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The fugitive London and Miami-based art dealer Inigo Philbrick appeared in federal court on the Micronesian island of Guam on 15th of June after his arrest by the FBI on the South Pacific island of Vanuatu. He was charged with running a $20 million art fraud scheme. Anna Brady writes that Philbrick, who's 33, was arrested after Vanuatu authorities expelled him at the request of the US Embassy in Papua New Guinea. Philbrick is currently detained pending his removal to a federal court in Manhattan. A date for that appearance is yet to be set. A group of demonstrators who stormed the Musée du Quai Branly Jacques Chirac in Paris last week said they tried to seize an African funeral pole from the museum because, quote, most of the works were taken during colonialism and we want justice. The five protesters were stopped before they could leave the museum with the work. The protest group, known as Les Marrons Unis Dignes et Courageux, describes itself as a pan-African organisation which fights for the freedom and transformation of Africa. The pole was not damaged. And finally, a new outbreak of the coronavirus in Beijing has dashed hopes of returning the city's art world to full operations after months of close to zero domestic transmissions, Lisa Movius writes. As of yesterday, 137 infections have been traced to a wholesale produce market in South Beijing's Fengtai district. All schools in the city have now been closed, and while commercial galleries within the 798 Creative Park and elsewhere remain open, several private museums have voluntarily closed. M Woods, which had only opened on the 12th of June, closed its location at the 798 Park on the 17th of June. You can read these and a wealth of other stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As museums, galleries and auction houses begin to reopen in Europe, Christie's has curated an exciting programme of sales this season. On the 23rd of June, Christie's will present Art d'Asie in Paris, bringing together a stunning group of Buddhist art, archaic bronze, Chinese imperial porcelain and more. Across the channel, manuscripts, objects of art and paintings from across the Islamic world will come on the block in London on the 25th of June. Works are now on view at Christie's. Entry is free and open to all. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, in Belgium, there's been an increasing focus on statues and monuments depicting Leopold II, Belgium's longest reigning monarch from 1865 to 1909, who's notorious for the brutal colonial regime he instigated in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This week, Belgium's federal parliament approved a proposal to create a commission that will examine the country's colonial history. And the city of Ghent has announced that the defaced bust of Leopold in its Zwid Park will be permanently removed on the 30th of June, the anniversary of Congolese independence. The alderman for equal opportunities for the city of Ghent is Astrid de Broeker, and I spoke to her about the statue and the wider context in Ghent and Belgium as a whole. Astrid, before we talk about the particular events in Ghent, can you give us more detail first about Leopold II and Belgium's activities in the Congo? And because I'm not sure that everyone that's listening to this will know about the extent of the atrocities. Uh, Leopold II was king of the Belgians um, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And also he was uh, the sovereign of what was called Congo Free State uh, in that same period, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And under his rule, um, 
in uh, Congo, uh, millions of people died. Um, his rule was known for um, extreme atrocities, uh, murder, torture, um, hands being amputated uh, when uh, the quota of rubber or um, other uh, products was not met. Uh, so uh, we are talking about um, crimes against humanity, uh, a black page in, in our history. One of the key focuses in the UK and the US over recent weeks as the Black Lives Matter protests have been going on has been about the teaching of histories. And particularly in the UK, it's about the history of imperialism. Can you tell me something about how that history, Leopold II and Belgium's colonial history, is taught in Belgian schools? Is there a level of accuracy in the way it's taught? When I look back to my own education, I don't remember um, being explained um, what uh, this rule of Leopold II and what uh, our own colonial history uh, of this country of Belgium was like. Um, I don't think it is being told uh, to its true extent. Uh, I think it's being told uh, through the eyes of, um, of white Belgians. Um, and not um, the other way around, through the eyes of um, of the many victims and of the families of victims um, who are uh, Belgians as well and who live in our communities and uh, who do not receive uh, the recognition they deserve for the for the pain that still lingers on uh, after generations. So no, I don't think it's uh, being taught uh, enough, and I think we we have a lot of work to do. So this is this is a key factor in all this, isn't it? One of the key complaints about the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol was that there were descendants of slaves who every day were walking past this slaver who was responsible for tens of thousands of African deaths. And that's the same in Belgium, right? There are communities in Belgium who are descendants of the very people who were harmed by by that colonial rule. Yes, uh, there are. Um, uh, the descendants of, of the of the victims are in our communities, but it's um, there's more. Um, there's even more. I think um, when we talk about colonialism and decolonizing, if that's a word in English, yes, it is. Um, yeah. Our our public space. Um, we also need to talk about decolonizing uh, the mines, not only the streets, but also the mines. And then I think we're talking about um, uh, about um, more people in our communities, people with different uh, backgrounds, uh, different uh, histories of migration. Uh, of uh, colonialism and um, I think we owe it to uh, these people in our communities um, to to talk about structural racism for example uh, which is also um, something that we uh, still carry in our communities and in our institutions so um, it's about um, how do we deal with uh, statues how do we deal with street names but it's not only about that it should be about um, what you said earlier about education about uh, teaching um, children what our own history was like but also and that's very important for me as a local politician um, responsible for equal opportunities also about tackling discriminations uh, tackling racism, um, which is still there and which is still um, making victims um, amongst our own communities. And how widespread is the desire to remove the statues of Leopold? Is is it creating a debate in uh, in Ghent and elsewhere, 
or is there is there a, a, a large acceptance that that it's unacceptable that he's that his presence is so um, is memorialized so in such a widespread way? There's a growing acceptance, and uh, it, it's, it pleases me to see that there's a growing um, acceptance, not only uh, amongst um, activists who have been um, talking about this issue for years already, for years, who have been asking for recognition for years, but we can see a growing um, acceptance now, and I'm very glad that this is happening. I'm very sad that this... Um, uh, had to be the result, or th this is the result of uh, the horrible things that happened uh, in in the United States uh, to to George Floyd and all of the victims of racism and and police violence uh, in the U.S. But we can see a global movement, I think. Um, that touches um, other communities as well, and that makes for a greater acceptance of the idea that we should not honor. Um, people who were responsible for such atrocities, um, like Leopold II was responsible for the atrocities in, in Congo. Um, so yes, I can feel that the acceptance is growing. And I'm really glad that uh, this debate is on the front pages now. And it's not only um, um, a debate um, in uh, a marginal debate. It's in the center of the attention, just where it should be. And I hope that we will uh, talk about the symbols, but we will also talk about what comes after the symbols. Uh, we have to remove these symbols and uh, decide um, together what we will do uh, with them. Will we put them away or will we put them in a museum uh, to, to continue talking about uh, these facts, these black pages in our history? Um, I think we should do that personally, but also how can we talk about um, uh, about what um, people with a background in migration are still confronted with today when they are searching for um, a place to live, when they are applying for a job and they um, um, come across uh, prejudice uh, and and plain discrimination. We need to talk about that as well. Um, and that's what we've been trying to do uh, in the city of Ghent um, since uh, years. We're trying to um, have policies that actively um, fight against discrimination and fight against racism. Um, uh, I would like to give you the example of situation testing. Um, I don't know if that's uh, a debate uh, in the UK, but it is in Belgium right now. Um, it's it's a, a, it's a way of uh, checking if when people apply for a job or they apply for um, uh, an apartment that is put for rent, are they treated the same way? Uh, whether they have um, 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 a last name, an African last name or an Arabic last name, or they have uh, a Belgian or Flemish uh, last name. And what we see, um, we have been doing these situation uh, testings um, in Ghent, in the city of Ghent. And what we see, it's it's terrible. It has been terrible. We, we've seen that a third of people um, with a migra migration background they just don't get invited to go and see an apartment just because of their 
last name, not because of the fact that they can't afford it or uh, they weren't polite when they asked to, to visit. Um, no, they just did exactly the same thing uh, as people with a Belgian uh, name, but they don't get invited in one third of the cases. And uh, that's our responsibility, responsibility as governments to prove that this is still existing, uh, to open the debate and to make sure that we get rid of these uh, practices of discrimination and racism in the daily life of people in our communities. This is a really interesting factor because in the UK, what's one of the sort of um, ways in which this has evolved is that in, to a certain extent it has become a political football in the sense that there were, particularly on the right there are people arguing that it's erasing history to take down statues and you can see that there's a sort of weaponization of this debate to in a way distract from the systemic racism that you're talking about is that the same in Belgium are you having to fight against more conservative or reactionary positions where people don't recognize the systemic problems uh, of course we do. Of course we do. But as I said before, I think um, there's a change going on. And I think that um, uh, the the one the people who are asking for recognition, who are asking for um, um, a true debate about our history and its back pages, and who are asking for a true debate about systemic racism and discrimination, we are becoming a, mi a majority and not a minority. And that's a good thing. Uh, so we should not give up, I think. <laughs> we should uh, continue. But of course, we, we have these, um, we have this opposition as well. Um, uh, there's, yes, we, d we do have that. But I think they're becoming a minority. And I'm glad uh, to see that happening. <laughs> um, can you tell me then about the specific um, sculpture in Ghent that you will be removing you've chosen a very symbolic day to take that statue down on the 30th mm -hmm. of June tell us about the anniversary and also tell us about the the discussions that you've had about what happens to it you know are you 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 said you're in favor of these things being removed and then put into a museum for instance do you do you yet know where this particular bust will go we haven't decided yet. We have decided to take it away. Um, and uh, we will decide um, together with people from different communities, with expert, academic experts, uh, what to do with it uh, later on. Uh, so putting it in a museum is one of the options, uh, but we haven't decided yet. Uh, but what we have decided is that we will take away the statue of Leopold II. We will not do it silently, but we will do it um with a public statement um, on the 30, 30th of uh, June, which is uh, the date of independence um, of, uh, of uh, the country of Congo. Um, so we want to make that statement and then we want to continue listening to the people from our different communities, to uh, academic experts and together decide uh, what to do with it in the future. And are you... Obviously, because in a sense, you're a test case, because this is a very high profile work and it's a very high profile incident. And uh, as you say, the debate is going on throughout Belgium. Mm -hmm. So are you in Ghent talking to other cities? Is there in a way a community of Belgian politicians who are engaging this and insisting in a way that it doesn't go away and it doesn't, in a sense, just remain a flashpoint at one particular moment and, then, and that you do address these systemic problems? 
I think we should we should probably do that. Um, uh, it's not only happening in Ghent; it's happening in Antwerp as well. It's happening in other cities. Uh, so um, it's um, it's a movement. Something is changing, and the time is now to um, to decide uh, on these uh, artifacts in our uh, public space. Uh, but about the debate about what will happen with it um, in the future. We we've been talking about this uh, for for a long time in our city uh, with uh, academic experts. We have a large university in Ghent. We have academic experts uh, participating. We have um, regular uh, people from Ghent who are interested in in this um, in this debate who are participating. So um, I think we should uh, continue this debate and then together decide what to what to do with this in the future. Okay, well, Astrid, thank you so much for talking to us and good luck with it all. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Now, no artist has made work as relentlessly about disputed statues as Hugh Locke. Locke was born in Edinburgh but grew up in Guyana and now lives and works in London. His work in sculpture, photography and painting has consistently explored the histories of colonialism and slavery, and he's addressed some of the very statues that have made the headlines in recent weeks directly, including the Edward Colston statue thrown into Bristol's docks. I spoke to Hugh about his work in this field, and we also asked him to choose the latest artwork in our series Lonely Works, where we focus on art behind the doors of museums that are closed because of COVID-19. Hugh's chosen Agostino Brunius's dancing scene in the West Indies, painted at some point between 1764 and 1796. You can see an image of the painting as we discuss it if you go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link and look for this episode. Hugh, I'd like to begin by talking to you about statues. There was a point when you did the proposal for the fourth plinth in London where you described yourself as a statue spotter. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> You're swinging up my past, man. I started getting interested in statues 20 years ago. And it was because of getting interested in things which were so visible that they were invisible. Statue, things people walk past every day and think, well, do not even notice these things, you know. And that's when I so so 20 years ago, that's when I started getting interested in these things. And it was, and it, it developed out of ideas, proposals I, I was making for ideas of statue dressing, and the proposals became the the work, almost, and they became a, a series of what I called at the time impossible proposals, things that people would would, would not really allow me to do, you know. Can you say what what you wanted to do to the statues? What because you would dress them essentially, wouldn't you? Exactly. I was looking to dress them and basically weigh them down with their history. Because though they stand there in, uh, dotted around the place, their, their history is not necessarily evident. You know, it's self-evident, shall we say. Uh, and I was trying to bring in, in, decorating these things with stuff to bring up what the hidden story is. What's not really revealed in just a name? Because quite frankly, they're just name plaques or name plaques of who erected the statue and who paid for it, quite often, sometimes by public subscription. And for me, it was like... And also, what it was as well, really important, was trying to get ownership over my landscape. 
You know, this landscape is set out for me. These things are set out to tell me a particular story. Like, no, no, no. I'm going to try and rewrite this story for myself personally, you know. And it also relates to an, an incident. You were born in Edinburgh, but you, you spent much of your childhood and grew up in Guyana, right? So That's right, yes. And it wasn't there something that you... Wasn't, you saw a statue of Victoria, Queen Victoria, in Guyana that had been deposed, essentially, and, and left. Yes, yes. That was a sort of seminal experience of my childhood growing up there. The statue of Queen Victoria stood in front of the Victoria Law Courts for a very, very long time, you know, nearly 100 years. And um, then the Victoria Law Courts, Guyana becomes independent, then becomes a republic, and the Victoria Law Courts become Guyana Law Courts. And they took the statue down and dumped it to the back of the botanical gardens. Now, this is, as we say in Guyana, behind God's back, you know what I mean? It's like far away, out of sight and whatever, you know. And they do it and dumped it on its side, and had things broke off and stuff like that. And then after a while, somebody felt bad and thought, propped her up and stuff. But there was this thing lost in the back of the botanical gardens. And I saw this when I was a kid. And that was quite a shock, you know. It was it was like, ah, oh, right, the old order has been overturned, you know. Years later, I saw it back again. It was replaced again in its original position. The... the Political scene had changed in Guyana. Um, relations had changed with the UK, and like and and it, but it was back in. But it was back as a piece of history, you know. It was a different thing, and it had been battered. It had been blown up in in in, in the independence struggle. So it was carrying it. It carries its, you know, its 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 history. You know, broken nose, broken arm, lots of stuff. And one of the things that strikes me about the work that you've done with statues is that you, in a way, you, you, you're consistently wanting to deepen the complexity of these things. Yes. You don't, you don't want to just to make it about binaries of good and bad. And you, you want to explore the very complexity of the issue, if you like. Yes, the, the issues are complex. But what's interesting with the whole Colston thing is that all of a sudden it's been made very simple in some ways, you know, like, Use a bastard, take him down, you know? And um, so I'm rethinking, not rethinking completely, but thinking over my whole history with this whole subject over time and thinking of my disappointment and upset of seeing Colston's statue being pulled out of the river in Bristol and thinking, oh my God, and the, the sense of anticlimax that really took me aback, you know. It took you aback because, in a way, you felt that him being at the bottom of the river was a sort of just deserts. In a way, it was it was it was a sort of fitting way for him to end, as it were. It, it's just deserts, but this this is a specific thing to Bristol. This is about Bristol. Huh? Bristol's had issues with this this particular image for a very long time, for well documented reasons. You know, he was a nasty piece of work. But the thing is, I knew that he would be, have to come back up again. I, I knew that that's the way things go, right? And I knew that that would happen. But leave him down for a little while, you know? Please, thank you very much. You know, let, let him, you know, you know s s s swim with the fishes or whatever, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting that because, of course, you did do a version. You know, you, when you made a series where you worked with photographs of contentious statues, you, yeah, the Colston statue was one that you actually did dress. So it, make, exactly. Can you say what you what the what you dressed it with? So you talked about earlier on these kind of objects that you that you dressed these statues in. Can you say more about the specific objects and where they come from as well? Exactly. The specific object I dressed them with was um um. So jewelry, gold jewelry, vintage gold jewelry, um, cheap jewelry, but actual fact, this thing which, in reality, in the context of the work, looked expensive, you know, um, and cheap at the same time. If you see what I mean, so it's a, it's a strange thing, anyway. But but more importantly, cowrie shells. He was dressed in cowrie shells, and cowrie shells were used as currency in the slave trade. You know, uh, you needed thousands of, uh, you, need a, you need a lot of cowrie shells to, to purchase a slave, but they were used as currency in that trade. And so it, so I was using that as a, talking about where he got his wealth, basically, you know. Yeah. And this is an interesting sort of fact in your, in the sort of language that you use, as it were, a kind of, a kind of object-based language, which is some of the materials you get are ready-made and you, you buy them from markets and things like that, right? Yeah. But others you make specifically for them. So, for instance, you also made a series of um, images of slaves from William Blake's paintings, right? So you, so you sort of have this balance of different kind of... Yeah, so there's a, there's a balance of... of, 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 of um... Of of things and and then I bl- blend them in together to make them fit, you know, which is obviously is is essential. They they need to work harmoniously together, you know. And the Blake thing, I've used that a lot. The Blake images from the um, the expedition in Suriname, basically slaves being tortured. But what I find I like about that that particular image is that the way I've used it is reminiscent of baroque statues of black men of slaves these romanticized images and once you and taking that image of blake as soon as you put it into etched metal all of a sudden it looks more attractive and there's something quite perverse about that which i find quite interesting can you say more about the kind of work that you've done um specifically referencing statues in the US because one of the intriguing things about that was you located the problematicness of statues in the US to a much more distant period than just the confederate statues which of course have taken up so much attention you took it much further back right yes for me i was looking at things like columbus but what i find what i was interested in is cuz there's a particular image of columbus in Central Park, and there was a commission in in New York. Same thing, like they're trying to have commissions here now. Another bloody commission, you know. And the commission was about whether to take these things down or not. But um, the Columbus one, he stands in Central Park, holding a a, a, a flag uh, with a crucifix on top of it. In other words, um, he's bringing civilization, religion to the natives. That kind of nonsense, you know. Um, and I, I, I adorned him with pre-Columbian stuff and basically made him into a kind of Aztec high priest, but also adding to him a medal, a replica medal from the Indian Wars in the US. And I mean, I've visited New York a lot. I knew these statues and I start, yeah, and also George Washington, who's an an obvious one, you know. So doing him, using him, but but decorating him with 
the accoutrements of the fact that he was a slave owner, you know. I thought the Confederate thing, for me, was too easy to, de to delve into. I wanted to delve into something which is a bit more messy, shall we say, you know. They're going, like, like, the, you know, like using, working with the Pilgrim Fathers Memorial statue in, in Central Park. I, f I find the, the, the complex and the messy things quite intriguing, you know. That's right. And, and in a way, you, you make them even more complex and messy because you make them attractive, ah, <laughs> if you know yes. what I mean. And, and you're playing around with that idea of, of how, you know, as you say, many of these statues have become essentially invisible and you're making them visible again and, and, and through doing so, illuminating history. I mean, we've heard a lot about the erasure of history and the airbrushing of history over yeah. recent days. You're doing the opposite, aren't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and but what's interesting as well about the, the thing is that some I can't who quoted the other day. I wish I could remember who it was. And so apologies to the person who quoted this. People only care about these statues and history like this when somebody's coming to remove it. You know what I mean? In other words, they're invisible. They 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 they, they remain quietly invisible until somebody comes to remove it. And and so that leaves me with complex debates about where do we go from here? You know. So let's turn to the lonely work then. Um, this is a work that was actually acquired by the Tate in the last decade, actually, even though it's a work from the 18th century. And it's a picture by Brunias that depicts life in the West Indies, or rather an idealised or airbrushed life in the West Indies. Seriously airbrushed, seriously airbrushed. I like the image because its, it's readings are complex for me. I mean, it, it's slaves... Or, or are they all slaves? That's the question. Dancing in a sort of village square kind of thing. I find it a really particularly interesting image because of the kind of society it's displaying. The women dancing, the light-skinned women, could be free women of colour, but this is not necessarily so i mean we're not really sure what's really going on the darker skinned people they're slaves but this is all all the brutality of this this of the slave set, slave system in the caribbean the plantation system is non-existent in this image you know i mean in in the caribbean slavery was brutal it was really brutal and 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 the people were the people are dressed differently so the, the the women lower down the social scale in this setup. I haven't I haven't got be as beautiful clothes, you know what I mean? They're bare breasted. They're sort of lower down the scale, you know. And um, that's that I find fascinating, you know. And also, it's about hierarchy of skin color, and that's something I find particularly fascinating, you know. But what's interesting as well about it is that though it's displaying this romanticized image, I've heard the arguments on both sides, it's displaying a romanticized image of the plantation society. Some people are saying it's portrayed, some people have argued that it's portraying an image of an ideal version of the Caribbean after slavery. I can't quite see that myself, you know. I mean, it seems to me that these kind of images and they the engravings were distributed quite widely by all accounts yes are a, are a very useful tool for pro-slavery people to justify their moral compass right spot on and that's what they've been accused of 
that that's what they were used for. They set, the, the arguments that they set back um, the cause of abolition quite a bit because, look, the slaves are happy, they're dancing, you know. But what's even more complex about these images is that they were so attractive as presenting this ideal society to Toussaint Louverture, the major hero of the Haitian Rebellion, that he had them made as buttons for his waistcoat. So he had buttons by Brunius made for his waistcoat, depicting this type of thing, this, this type of image, you know, romanticized, light-skinned um, people with black, with dark skin, darker-skinned people, in a similar kind of way, you know. One of one of the interesting things, if you look on the Tate's website, Hugh, is that is that is that it says that there are some arguments being put forward that, in some ways, by, um, for instance, making a reference to the three graces and classical statuary in connection with images of slavery, there's an element of uh, uh, imbuing slaves with dignity in this depiction of them. But then, when you know that the clients for Brunius were slave owners, plantation owners, uh, colonial figures. It rather undermines that argument, doesn't it? Yes, no, it completely undermines that argument. What I like about this image is not just what it shows you, it's the whole history around it, the whole idea around it. And the fact that it was being consumed by slave owners, by brutal plantation owners, they are buying into an idealised image of of. of of their world. But at the same time, these aren't caricatures of black people. You know what I mean? They're not horrible caricatures. So they, they, they've been given some sort of dignity. Not all of them, you know what I mean? That's for sure. So, 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 it, it, it's, so it's complicated. But yeah, I mean, the fact that it was, that he was successful in, in, in selling this stuff and doing prints to the audience who were the guys up on the hill? I mean, really, if he was going to do this thing accurately, right, what you should be seeing up on the hill behind him is bodies hanging, you know what I mean? That's what you really should be seeing, you know what I mean? But that's not, or, or like tortured bodies dotted around behind there. But, well, you have this, this romantic pastoral scene, you know? And when you break it down, it's a deeply, deeply problematic image, you know? And of course, that brings into question the, the, this idea of the Tate acquiring it in 2013 and effectively injecting into the collection, the national collection of British art, those problems. Because, you know, it's it's pretty astonishing. I learned that this this was the first painting of the West Indies, and there are very many of those paintings, of course, to enter a national collection. So it, it just goes to show, again, talking about the airbrushing of history, our collections have airbrushed this element of British history out of the picture, right? Yes, yeah, no, no, I, would, I would agree with that. I wonder how, how difficult it was to get hold of this painting, because these paintings you, don't, you can't get hold of, because they, they're in collections all over the place. They're acquired, you know, people don't let go of these things, because they're, they're highly treasured things. But he's also done images of a treaty of pacification with the Maroons. And that's interesting as well, because I've looked at this guy for years, by the way. It's obviously so it's somebody I've been interested in for a very long time. But, I mean, it's there's an image of men laying down their arms in front of British army officers, right? And it's it's about the Jamaican Maroon Wars, you know? And uh, and also it's probably, it's probably the talks about the first Carib Wars and St. Vincent. So 
it, it, it this is this is political stuff you know so so he's as, as he's painting these romanticized plantation images he's also on the other hand painting images of conflict you know but but obviously images of subjugation as well you know because the maroons lost you know one of the things i find most perplexing and troubling i think about this image is brunius's gaze and what it might mean because he was somebody who genuinely lived there and obviously he is justifying his observation of the bodies of slaves by making this classical reference to the three graces but of course it is an imperial gaze on a black body and therefore is it it's I find that very troubling. Yeah, it is very troubling. But what you what you got to look at it is it's not it's, it, you talk, you keep talking about the three graces. Forget three. It's one figure who's focal point of this, and she's light skinned and she's wearing a white dress and she's obviously based on a kind of Venus kind of figure. Do you know what I mean? So so it's, so it's it's more than that. The others are just there as uh, everything is there as a prop. It's a bit like when you see a film and you see. The, the the camera is panning at the at the people walking down the street, but the star somehow has extra light in them to pick them out. That's what this is about, and the fact and it, it's to do with her skin color. That's what I find interesting. You know what I mean? And um, race in the Caribbean today is a whole complex minefield. Race in the Caribbean and race in the UK are similar, but they have their own peculiarities and um that's what i look at when i see this thing and i i'm curious to know who what what's for me is equally curious is who owns these prints today in the caribbean and how are they viewed you know because it's it's a very awkward thing because i could see this print in somebody's house in the caribbean walking past it every day but this is me completely speculating trying to um pull from it something positive from all the horror you know what i mean as in something well this is what my ancestors may have dressed like you know what i mean because 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 the thing is some of his depictions are are accurate you know what i mean the the, the clothing and so the costume that there's the, the, accuracy in it you know what i mean the the people don't look that horrible you know but it's a completely exploitative image. <laughs> okay, well, Hugh, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this and this lonely work today. Yeah, thank you. And um, we'll see you on the other side of this problem. it for this week you can subscribe to the art newspaper on the website click the subscribe link at the top left of the home page and sign up for our newsletters while you're there the links at the top right of the page please also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it you can also find us on twitter at tan audio and on facebook and instagram of course the week in art is produced by julia mahouska amy dawson and david clack and david's also the editor thanks to richard to astrid and to hugh and thank you for listening we'll see you next week Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.